But we've been studying through uh, this rather difficult passage of Scripture the last several weeks and um, Romans 9. So I'd ask you if you'd turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Um, and I just want to just open up this message uh, simply by saying if you're struggling with these deep truths about God's sovereignty um, that we've been working through here in Romans 9, uh, you're in good company <laughs> because uh, we all struggle with this. This is a very difficult passage of Scripture. I mean, people that have a lot more brains than I do struggle with this. But that doesn't mean it doesn't, it's not true and that we shouldn't attempt to understand what Paul has recorded through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in the Word for us. Um, it's in Second Peter, I believe, chapter 3, where Peter says this in verse 15. He says, Regard the patience of our Lord as uh, salvation, just as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. And then he says this, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. The one thing we don't want to do, beloved, just because we don't understand something, is distort the word of God. We want to teach it as plainly as it's written, and what it says is what it says. And we just have to understand that here Peter is talking about God's patience in delaying judgment until all of God's elect are saved. And in that context, Peter refers to Paul's writing about this same thing. And he, he only does this in three other places. Paul does. <clears throat> Talks about God's patience in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And also over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to uh, 16. But here in chapter 9 is probably the most difficult passage to understand. And that's okay. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not inspired. That doesn't mean that Paul didn't write it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so the one thing that we want to be clear about, the doctrine of sovereign divine election, the truth of predestination, is very much discussed and there's a lot of different um, discussions, and sometimes those discussions can get rather heated, okay, because it's a very touchy subject with a lot of people. There's a lot of people, unfortunately, that hate the teaching of predestination. They just hate it. There are other people who hate the thought of divine election, the idea that God would choose before the foundation of the world those who will be saved. There are some people <clears throat> that would even <clears throat> say that this doctrine is demonic, <clears throat> that the doctrine somehow is inspired by Satan himself. I mean, that's this is crazy because it's right here in the Word of God. <clears throat> it is such an affront um, to our senses, though, and and what I mean by that, it doesn't seem fair to us. A couple weeks ago, we talked about is God fair? Um. And, you know, these people are, are believers. I wouldn't say they're not believers because they believe maybe a little different on, on something like this. But when you come down to it, um, to say that it comes from the enemy of God, that's, that's a, a stretch. But it is a doctrine 
that is hard to accept emotionally. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's hard to understand that God would decide those who he would save. Um, it seems that it's kind of an assault against our will, our free will, our human choice, they say. And sometimes people think that somehow people are convinced that as the human race, we have some kind of a right, a human right to salvation. And those feelings are understood. I feel the same way sometimes when you look at some of these passages. Uh, It's a hard doctrine to accept. And all of us who have come to understand what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of election have had to deal with all those feelings sooner or later. You have to deal with them. You have to deal with all the rational arguments that it doesn't seem fair, that it doesn't seem just. This can't be the way it is. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tragic emotion you feel when you think that God passes by some sinners. Um, we've all had to deal with that. And yet, we understand that we also have a volition. We have a, a choice. Ultimately, that choice is not independent of God. If you're going to come to a biblical understanding of the doctrine of the sovereign election and predestination, and the doctrine we'll look at today, reprobation, you're going to have to work through all those issues. And that may take some time. But we need to be reminded of the simple fact that just because it doesn't satisfy our own understanding, our own reason, our own emotion, that doesn't make it untrue. I mean, who are we to question the authority of God's word? I remember when I was first a Christian, I, I would read through Romans and I got, would get excited and I'd get to Romans 8 and I'd get really excited. And boy, you're going through, you know, it's, it's, I, I kind of picture it this way, you know, like I'm skiing down a ski slope, you know, and you're out there, just the snow is just beautiful and you're just gliding down this slope. That's how I felt when I was reading Romans 8. And then I start reading Romans 9 and it's kind of like my skis hit just dry ground. <laughs> you ever been skiing and you hit dry ground? It's not a good thing, okay? Especially if you're going fast because you'll flip right out of your skis. But you just come to a, a dead stop. And that's how people feel when they're reading through Romans and they come to Romans 8 and, oh, yes, you know, what can separate it? This is such a glorious passage. And then they get down to Romans 6, 9, 6, and it talks about, um, or, or, or down to uh, verse uh, 12, excuse me, the older will serve the younger, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And we say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. That can't be right. <laughs> Does that really say that? And so people try to do gymnastics with the, the word, well, hate doesn't really mean hate. and It means what it means. And then you get down to verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I mean, by that time, you're, you're kind of doing loops in your head, and you're going, wait a minute. How does this fit into the gospel? And we've all probably battled with those verses. And we come to the 
the, the question in verse 19, who will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And we've all gone through those feelings. But I want to read for us the passage we're looking at today. And I just want to pick up there in Romans 6 and read right down through the passage. You can follow along in your Bibles, Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham belong because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul writes. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture said to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19. For will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? Look at verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use, and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy for he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not only the Jews uh, only but also from the Gentiles I mean that's just a very sobering portion of scripture and Paul kind of answers props these questions up because he knows his listeners, his readers are going to be asking these exact same questions. Um, and I remember when I was struggling with this, even as a new believer back in the early 80s, and I'd say, man, how does this work? <clears throat> and I was going to a school at the time that, that wasn't really strong in the doctrines of grace, unfortunately, and so I kind of had a skewed view of my salvation. I was kind of buying into the whole idea that I chose God and that I made this decision and, and that this was, you know, kind of patting myself on the back for my own salvation because I finally figured this out. And then I began to read Romans chapter 9 and I began to realize, wow, my salvation has very little to do with me. Very little. Um, 
And it was finally, when I read that verse, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? I began to realize, you know what? I'm nobody. I am absolutely nobody. I can't question God. It's not Paul I'm, I'm frustrated with here. It's, it's God. It's God's inspired word. And I felt like Job in Job chapter 40, verse 2, where he says, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? And Job answers back, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. Um, In Isaiah chapter 55, we're reminded by the prophet in verses 8 and 9, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Or even in Romans chapter 11, if you turn a couple pages to the right, down in verses 33 and 36, Paul kind of concludes all this meaty stuff we're going with, going through, and we'll be getting to this passage, but I just wanted to read it for you this morning because it really speaks to um, us having kind of a, a question in our mind, is, 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 is this right, God? Look at what it says in verse 33, Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In other words, sometimes we just need to shut our mouths and say, Okay, God, if this is what your word teaches, then we have to be okay with this. And at that point, I realized the fight is over. And, and God, you know what? You win. And, and, and on that, I can, I can remember just coming to this conclusion saying, you know what? I just need to bow my knee before God's sovereignty concerning this issue. Um, it's essential for us to understand that God is holy. We sang about that this morning. That his nature is holy. That he is infinitely and perfectly just in every way. That he is morally, you might say, flawless. He's perfect. He is perfection. So for us to point our finger at God and say, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. That's the wrong side of the, you don't want to be on that side of the tracks. Because you're contending with the almighty God. Everything in him and of him and for him and from him and by him is perfect. Everything. There's no mistakes. There's no mishaps in judgment. There's no errors in justice. For whatever he says is just is what justice is. And we've been looking at this doctrine of divine election. And you see the the definition there in your outline. The act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That's a difficult doctrine for a lot of people. But the other side of election is reprobation, and we're going to be looking at that a little later. 
And that's even more difficult. So you're really going to have to put on your thinking caps with me this morning. Um, and in just in case you've just joined us here this morning, you know, I almost want to apologize. Because you don't have the foundation of understanding where we've been in Romans. And we've tried to lay down a foundation of, of God's, uh, you know, uh, salvation and, and our state before God has fallen. And that we need a Savior. And we've gone through all the passages up to this point. And I would ask you to go on the website or ask for the CDs or whatever, but you have to go back and you have to listen to some of the previous messages to really get up to speed and, and have that foundation to where this isn't just doesn't seem like a, you know, a blast of, of uh, hot water in your face. And you're going, whoa, okay? So you have to be patient this morning. But I would encourage you to go back and, and, and listen to those messages so you can benefit from the foundation that we've laid as well. Um, but election is something that is taught in the Bible. As far back as Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses uh, 6 and De- Deuteronomy 14, 2, it says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his own possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. And God didn't say that because there was something special about these people. He said it because he set his love divinely upon them. Why he did it, I'll never know. Sometimes when you look at Israel and you look at why God God choose a nation like that, you begin to scratch your head. I mean, just with all the disobedience in the Old Testament and God chose these people. And yet today in our our church age, we look around and we look at other believers and we scratch our head and we go, man, God saved that person? (laughs) That person saved? You got to be kidding me. See, God put this in scripture. He said it because He predetermined to set his love upon those here in this text in Deuteronomy, Israel. And he predetermined to call them his own. In the New Testament, whenever it's referring to the church, we're not called necessarily Christians. We're not called believers. We're not called religious people. We're called what? The elect. We're called the chosen over and over and over again in Matthew chapter 24, verses 22 to 24. It says, In those days, uh, and if those days had not been cut short, the days uh, of, of the end times, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, he says, those days will be cut off. And then he goes on, he talks about seeing false Christs here and there. He says in verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, which is not possible, even the elect, he says. They're not called believers. They're not called Christians. They're called the elect. We're always called the elect in Scripture. Look at down verse 31 in Matthew 24. He says he will send forth his angels when the Lord uh, returns, he's speaking of, when um, he comes in, in glory. He says he will send his angels with a great triumph, and they will gather together who? His elect. Well, who elected him? He did. They didn't elect themselves. That's a designation for the people of God. In Luke chapter 18, verse 6, the Lord says, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Not shall not, uh, now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? Again, they're called the elect. And even in Romans 8, we saw this. And this is just kind of giving you some review, so you're kind of a little bit up to speed anyway. In Romans chapter 8, we, we began to realize that 
those of us who are saved, those of us who are believers, those of us who are in the family of God, who have been redeemed, regenerated, reconciled, we now belong to God, that we've been declared righteous, Paul says, and that righteousness has been given to us, it's been imputed is the word to us, through faith in Christ. And then in verse 33 of Romans 8, he says, Who shall bring a charge against these people? What's he call them? He calls them God's elect. God is the one who justifies, and if God declares that we are righteous before him, no one, no one can successfully bring an accusation against his elect. And even in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And over in Colossians, Paul continues. He says in verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul writes, and those who have been chosen by God. He's referring to believers. Literally, that means the elect of God. Or in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 16. I mean, you can't get any clearer than this, right? Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and here's what he told them. You did not choose me, but I what? I chose you. Or in the 13th chapter of Acts. Verse 48, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many, look at what it says, as were appointed to eternal life believed. See, for, for, for people who resist this doctrine, this is hard to swallow. Because it says very clearly, when the Gentiles heard this, They heard the message about salvation. They began to rejoice. They glorified the word of the Lord. And then it says that as many has been appointed. Appointed by who? Appointed by God. Before the foundation of the world. To eternal life believed. Now, I've been saved since 1979. And there's a lot of stuff that I still do not understand when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to different attributes of God. But you know what? The one thing I've concluded in my Christian life is God has the right to do as he pleases for his glory. And once I've concluded that, you know what? This stuff doesn't really bother me much anymore. I'm content to let God be God and be sovereign in these matters. And we really, church need to come to the point where we're willing to bow our knees to this great truth of divine election. And once you do that, it becomes to us the most precious doctrine in all the Bible. Now, I understand. I understand what the Word of God teaches when it comes to salvation. I understand that you know, it, it tells us very clearly that, that God uh, would not wish any to perish. 2 Peter 3.9 um, He says in 1 Timothy 2.4 God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, 
we looked at this before and we began to understand that God has a moral will and a decreed will. God has a moral will and a sovereign will. You can go through and see God's moral will throughout the word. The Bible says that God hates divorce. The Bible says that thou shalt not kill. The Bible tells children to obey the parents. What is that? That's the moral will of God. That's what he desires. But does that just take place? No. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, it says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. But that doesn't mean everybody's going to repent. That's his desire. I mean, you can, you know, sit here and dream all you want. Man, if, you know, if if somebody gave me a billion dollars, how I could bless people. And you can, you know, go off in some dreamland. But just because you want that to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. So you could say that God wants all those things to happen. He wants people not to kill each other. He wants children to obey their parents. He wants people to repent and come to Christ. That's in accordance with his moral will. He he doesn't want any sin. And every time there's a sin, it, it grieves him deeply. That's all connected to God's moral will. But God also has a sovereign will. That God is still in control. That God is sovereign over everything. And you have to remember both of those when it comes to the sovereignty of God. To the point that that God isn't the author of evil. He's not the author of sin. But you know what? He's ordained sin to be present. He's ordained evil to be present. Because it is. And even if it means for a time here in human history, there's a a violation, violation of his moral will. Even that is under his sovereign hand that somehow he's going to get glory out of that. And somehow there's going to be blessing that comes out of that. Now, I understand what the Bible says about salvation. We mentioned 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth, that God's not willing that any should perish, but they should come to repentance. We're commanded in Scripture to preach the gospel to who? Just the elect? No. We're commanded to preach the gospel to who? To everybody. And I know the Bible commands all men everywhere to repent. And that demand that all consider his son as their savior with whom he's well pleased. Did you ever think of the gospel as a command? You know, we talk about the free gift of the gospel, the free gift of salvation. And it is that. But it's also a command. God commands us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you're, if you're not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone for your salvation, you're really standing in the face of God and saying, no, I am not going to do what you're asking me to do. This is the God who created you. This is the God who loves you infinitely more than you could ever even understand. The gospel is essentially a command. 
Now, is there human choice? Is there human volition involved in that? We're not robots. Of course there is. God didn't create us like robots. Thank God he didn't. The Bible says, choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus says, come on to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. And Jesus posed the question, why will you die? Will you not come to me that you might have life? See, the invitation of the gospel to everybody is a genuine invitation. The Bible indicts all of us as sinners. All of us as sinners are personally guilty of violating God's holy law. And because of that, the Bible says that we deserve his divine wrath. And we deserve his eternal punishment. The Bible says clearly, we've gone through this in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible also teaches this, and we went through this when we went through the earlier chapters of Romans. that the, it, it indicates that all sinners have enough revelation to be responsible for their sin. Through creation in Romans 1. Through their conscience in Romans 2, it says. The sinner is given light. And if you follow that light, it will lead you to the truth. If you fail to follow that light, unfortunately, you're going to perish under God's wrath because of your sin and your rejection of the Savior. Now, we we get all that. We understand that. We've been through those studies. That's all in Scripture. But what's weird is at the same time, without any contradiction in the mind of God whatsoever, there's a kind of unfolding of the mystery here that tells us that no sinner is capable of understanding the truth. The Bible says clearly, the natural man, the unsaved man, understands not the things of God. They are incomprehensible to him. Even the preaching of the cross, the Bible says, is foolishness to him. The very message that will save you looks like a fairy tale. You're going, hey, you know, I'm not going to believe this stuff. And as believers, we go around telling unbelievers, you know, you just need to repent. Do we understand that they can't? They can't generate repentance. They can't just sit down one day and go, okay, I'm going to change my mind concerning God. I'm going to, I'm going to believe the gospel. And I'm, I'm going to do all this stuff. No. Acts eleven eighteen says this. The only way a sinner could ever repent is if God grants him repentance. I mean, even believing is beyond the capability of us as fallen creatures. In the Gospel of John, first chapter, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. We love that verse, and we use that verse all the time. And it's a blessed verse, but we stop there. We need to continue to read verse 13, where it says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, well, who's God? Whose will then, God? It's God's will. But of God, it says. 
See, believing does not come by our own will, beloved. It doesn't come by the will of the flesh. The Bible says that we're incapable of understanding God's truth in our sin. We're incapable of repenting. We're incapable of believing. So the only way that one can come to Christ is that God has to do a work in their heart. He has to save them. He has to transform them. God has to grant them understanding and repentance. Grant them faith. God has to overpower spiritual death and give them life. Overpower blindness and give them sight. Overpower ignorance and give them truth. Overcome the desire to sin and replace it with a desire to seek after righteousness. That's not something we can generate in and of ourselves. If we could, the world wouldn't be in the state in which it is. See, if anyone is ever saved, beloved, it's because God overrules all the normal natural abilities within that person. He overrules it. He overrules their inability to do this and that and believe and get repentance and faith. He overrules all that. That's why when we talk about salvation, we say that salvation is all of God. It has to be. There's no other way. It's not just all of grace. It's all of God. It's God's work in our heart and our lives. Now, with that being said, it's never apart from the human will. I've never met a Christian that said, you know, I just don't like being a Christian, but God elected me and he saved me. And so here I am. I just hate it. I just can't stand it. And when I die, I wish I'd go to hell, but God's going to take me to heaven anyway. I've never met someone in that state of mind. And I'm sure you haven't either. Somehow God works through our will and our, our volition and he molds us and he draws us, the Bible says, to himself. He replaces those desires for sin for desires of righteousness. No one would ever choose Christ if God had not first chosen him. And see, this doctrine should cause us to fall on our knees and say, Wow, what an incredible thing that God chose me. That God saved me. That God gave me the ability to believe and to understand his word and to have fellowship with other saints and brothers and sisters in Christ. If it wasn't for God, I'd still be lost in my sin. That should cause us every day to be thankful for the grace and the work of salvation that he's done. That doctrine is called divine election. That act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved. Not on any foreseen merit in us but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Well, now we come to the doctrine of reprobation. You thought the doctrine of election was difficult. We're probably examining one of the most difficult portions of Scripture in the entire Bible. Not only because it deals with the doctrine of election, but it also deals with the doctrine of reprobation. Well, what does the doctrine of reprobation say? The doctrine of reprobation is basically the decision of God to pass over those who will not be saved and to punish them for their sins. Some people come to this doctrine and they misappropriate it. They, they, they draw up a character in their own mind about it. 
You've probably heard this doctrine referred to as um, double election. Um, You know, there's a lot of other terms that this can be called. But it comes right out of this passage in verses 13 to 18. It's the doctrine that God rejects or repudiates some persons to external condemnation in a way parallel but opposite to the way he ordains and orders to salvation. And this is very dicey stuff. This is where you've got to have your thinking cap on for this because it's, it's a very difficult thing to grasp. It's basically drawn out of Malachi where we see here, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He says that in verse uh, 13 there. And then in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, I raised up Pharaoh for the very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then he summarizes in verse 18. He says, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. I mean, some people look at this doctrine as a monstrous doctrine. That's just, that's not who God is. God would not do this. Because they don't understand the doctrine. They go to logic. And logic will lead you down this path. Logic will tell you, well, the doctrine of reprobation is basically, what that means is is that God kind of sits up in heaven and, and arbitrarily he just assigns destinies to these humans. So he says, okay, uh, you know, you're going to heaven, yeah, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. Kind of willy-nilly choice. And I don't really care, because I'm God. And it's my choice, it's not yours, so. So what? That's not what the doctrine teaches. There's something here we have to, to deal with, because you can't study the doctrine of election and just kind of not study the doctrine of reprobation. It's right there. John Calvin said this, that election cannot stand except as set over against reprobation. But this doctrine is a very easy doctrine to distort. It's it's kind of the positive. Election is, think of it this way, election is the positive side of predestination. Reprobation is the negative side. The positive side is, yeah, God's choosing some to be saved. The negative side is, you know what? He's not choosing everybody to be saved. Therefore, he's passing over some. And so all these questions begin to well up in your mind. Well, well, wait a minute. If that's the case, then aren't we just a bunch of robots? We want to see... First of all, in Scripture, is, is this doctrine of reprobation taught elsewhere than Romans 9? Well, yes, it is. And I'll take you to a couple passages here. Because we want to go through the same procedure when we went through election. Some people, oh, I don't believe that. Well, you're going to have to argue with Scripture. I'm not just pulling things out of thin air. We just went through some verses that speak to election, divine election. Well, now we're going to do the same thing, and we're going to look to the Word of God and say, well, is this doctrine of reprobation... The idea that God passes over some and, 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 and causes them to perish. They perish in their sin as a result of that. Then, you know what? Let's see what these verses say. Proverbs 16.4, it says, The Lord works out everything for his own ends. And then it clarifies. It says, Even the wicked for a day of disaster. 
See, that's all under God's sovereign hand. Or John 12, verse 39 and 40. Therefore they, who the people that Jesus was speaking with, the people of Jesus' time, they could not believe, it says. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Or John thirteen eighteen, Jesus said this, I know those I have chosen, but this, he's speaking of Judas's betrayal here in the context, the betrayal by Judas. He says, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Or John 17, 12, when Jesus was praying, he says, while I was with them, the disciples, he says, I protected them and I kept them safe by the name you gave me. He says, none has been lost except the one. Who? Judas. What about Judas? He was doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. It says, Now to you who believe, this stone, Jesus Christ, is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because it says they disobey the message. Which is also what they were destined for. Talk about a sobering doctrine, beloved. This is heavy stuff. Or even in Jude, verse 4. Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly uh, slipped in among you. And he goes on there and he talks about that these men are, are destined for destruction. And then we come to Romans 9, and we see here, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He talks about hardening Pharaoh's heart. And then he says, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. It's probably one of the most forceful statements of predestination, both election and reprobation in the Bible, in Romans 9 here. Now, to fully understand this doctrine, we have to make some important distinctions. We have to make different distinction between election and the doctrine of reprobation. Because the question you have to ask is this. Listen carefully. Are the actions involved in these two doctrines, what? Election and reprobation to be thought of in exactly the same way. There's a, there's, a, there's a theological term called equal ultimacy. And what equal ultimacy theologians use to refer to is the way God elects some for salvation, well, he applies the doctrine of reprobation the same way. He elects these people to go to hell. That's what they would claim. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's kind of where your logic goes, though. Right? I mean, if you have a group of people and God chooses some for salvation, well, then isn't he choosing these to go to hell? See what I'm saying? But that's not what the Bible teaches. (laughs) 
So you have to ask that question. Are the actions involved in both to be thought of exactly the same way? Are they equally ultimate? Does God decide the same way for those that are going to heaven the same way those that are on the way to hell? You might say it this way. Does God determine the destinies of individuals in exactly the same way so that without consideration of what they might do or what they do or might do, he assigns one to heaven and the other to hell? Is that what this doctrine is teaching? Now, we know that that's true when it comes to election, right? He does do that. He does save people. He doesn't save us on our own merit. You know, we, we've already looked at the idea, well, doesn't God look down through the ages of time and see us respond positively to the gospel so then back here he can choose us because of our response? No, that's not what, that's not what divine election is. That's not what foreknowledge is. Foreknowledge is not God knowing what you're going to do. Foreknowledge is God knowing you. Completely. So we know that he chooses some for salvation without any consideration of what they do or they might do because it's all of grace. It's all of Christ. But does that apply to the other side of this doctrine as well? This is the key question. We're told in Romans, as a matter of fact, from Paul's point of view, that salvation is due entirely to God's mercy. His grace. Not to any good that we could muster up in and of ourselves. There's nothing good in and of us. That God looks at us and says, I need him on my team. The question is whether this can be said of the other side, the doctrine of reprobation. Has God assigned them to hell apart from anything that they have done? Apart from them deserving it? That's what some people would claim. In theological terms, sometimes you, you refer to certain people as certain things, and sometimes they'll be, they'll be called hyper-Calvinists. The idea that God elects some to heaven and some to hell, or double predestination. They use all these terms. But it's important to make the distinction between election and reprobation. I want you to understand that most of the Reformed thinkers reject the, the idea of equal ultimacy. The idea that, well, he deals with the elect the same way he deals with those who are reprobate. In the Westminster Confession, here's a good definition of election and an even better definition of reprobation. I think it's going to be up there on the screen. Those of mankind... This is speaking of the elect. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and in the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his free, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's who God has elected. The rest of mankind, it says, 
God was pleased according to his unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he please, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. Those are the two doctrines, election and reprobation. Those two statements almost seem the same in some respect. They both flow out of the eternal counsels of God's will. They don't come out of our own will. They come out of God's will. Both are for the end of making God's glory known to everyone. So in that respect, they are equal. But there's also some important things you have to understand here. First of all, reprobation is not God assigning men and women and people to hell. Reprobation is the doctrine that God is passing over them. See, election is God choosing some for salvation. Reprobation is saying, you know what, and and the rest I'm going to pass over. Um, The ultimate effect really is the same. These are going to heaven. These are going to hell. But how do we get to there? See, that's the key theological question. The reason why some believe the gospel and are saved by it is because God intervenes in their life, right? And he saves them. He brings them to faith. He does it through the new birth, the new the, the, uh, regeneration, transformation of them. But those who are lost are not made to disbelieve by God. They're not made to sin. They do that all by themselves. That's the distinction. To ordain their end, God needs only to withhold that special grace of regeneration. And in his divine sovereignty, that's what he does. It also says that, that these vessels, God ordains them to dishonor and wrath and the, the Westminster Confession says, for their sin. And that's very important to understand. It's a very important observation to make. If, if, if It's not some just arbitrary action that God's doing. You're going to heaven and you're going to hell. And you're going to heaven and you're going to hell. Think of it this way. We're all going to hell. <laughs> Amen? We're all on our way to hell. Because of our sin. We're guilty before a holy God. God in his sovereign choice chooses some of us to go to heaven. We were all going to hell anyway. But God, because of his love that he set upon us divinely before the foundation of the world, why he did it, who knows? Did you ever ask that question? Why did God save me? Why didn't he save this guy? Why, why would he save me? Well, maybe, you know, maybe because, you know, I play the piano. <laughs> I mean, you can start thinking all crazy things, right? No, that's not why. Why? Because there wasn't pianos when he saved you. 
It was before the foundation of the world. So you, you weren't even a twinkle in your mom's eye when God set his love upon you. Wow. Humbling doctrine, isn't it? Why did he save you? Because he wanted to. And he's God. And he has the free will and determination to make that choice. So the lost are not lost because God willy-nilly chooses or consigns that to them, but rather as a just judgment upon the rejection of a Savior. And this is where people get this wrong. They view that God positively and actively intervenes in the lives of the elect to bring them salvation. That's true. But then they, they, they carry that over to the other side, to reprobation. That same logic. And they say, well, reprobation, it's the same thing. God positively and actively intervenes in the life of the reprobate to bring him to sin. To bring him to reject. He forces this person to reject him. How? What kind of God would that be? That's not what it says. That's not what the Bible teaches. Wayne Grudem says this. When we understand election as God's sovereign choice of some persons to be saved, there is necessarily another aspect of that choice. Namely, God's sovereign decision to pass over others and not save them. This decision of God in eternity past is called reprobation. Reprobation is a sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice. He goes on and he says this, we would not want to believe this, that this doctrine is not something that we would want to believe and would not believe it unless it was clearly taught in Scripture. I mean, you know what this doctrine does? The doctrine of election and the doctrine of reprobation? It really shows us that this book is a divinely inspired book. Because if I was writing this book, I would never put something like that in this book. Right? I mean, it shows you that it's from the hand of God. And so here... In Romans 9, what is Paul saying to us? In our text, he's saying the sovereign God has the right to deal with sinful creatures in such a way as to display his glory both in judgment and in mercy. He's going to have mercy on whom he desires. He will harden whom he desires. And Paul asked this question in our text. I mean, you might say, well, aren't we just robots then? No, we're not. You might say, don't we have the free, free will to choose or reject God? If we don't, then, then and this is what Paul asks in, the, in the, 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 the text here. He says, how can he rightly judge us since we're just acting like he programmed us to act? See, that's where our logic wants to go. And this would have been the perfect place for Paul to kind of inject here into the text and say, wait, no, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Your question shows that you misunderstand me. I didn't mean that people can't resist God's will. That would deny their free will. And we all believe in free will, right? What I meant was that God has mercy on whoever he foreknows will trust in him. And he hardens all those he foreknows will reject him. 
The whole adage, God looks down through the corridors of time and sees whether you're going to come to him or not, and then he chooses you based on that. If I was Paul, that's what I would have said. But that's not what Paul said. He doubled down. His answer shows us clearly that God has a sovereign right to display his power and to have his name proclaimed throughout the whole earth when he's dealing with Pharaoh. He says, God loved Jacob, hated Esau. See, the sovereign God has all the rights to deal with sinful creatures as he chooses. I hate to break this to you, but we don't have any rights. I know we live in a society that's all about human rights and all about... We have no rights. We have no rights. He allows the question, is there injustice with God? But he says, no. there's there's, There's no way that could ever be. As a matter of fact, he's basically saying, you know what? You've crossed the line. You're out of bounds. You don't have a right to ask that question. Who do you think you are? You need to humble your your heart before the almighty, sovereign, holy God of the universe. John Calvin points out that the question not only defends the one asking it, but it also makes God the guilty one. If you ask that kind of question. It attempts to turn the tables by saying, God, it's your fault that I'm sinning. You point your finger at God. Well, you made me this way. You're the sovereign potter. I'm just passive, helpless clay. Here I am. Boy, why did you make me out to reject you this way? How can you blame me, God, for all this sin? You're the one that created me. So the very question for who resists his will is really to resist his will, if you think about it, when you ask that question. Because it's not true that God made us to be sinners. That's, that's a mistruth. Whoops. <laughs> the human race was plunged into sin when Adam and Eve sinned. So then you, you double down on that. You say, well, see, it's still not my fault. It was because of Adam. But to say that is to contend with an all-wise, sovereign God who assigned to Adam his role as the head of the human race. Think about it. If, if our president decides that we're going to go to war with another country, guess what? We're all going to war with another country. Just because you didn't make the decision doesn't mean that you're not part of the, the deal. It's the same way with our, our sin. And don't sit here thinking you would have done anything different than Adam. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we wouldn't have done any better. We would have bought into the deal just like he did. Exactly right. We do all the time, don't we? We have enough guilt in our own track record to condemn us. We don't even need Adam's sin. So we don't really have a leg to stand on when it comes to arguing with a holy God about how he deals with us as sinners. He holds all the cards. 
I mean, to blame God's sovereignty on your sin is, is, is kind of like a murderer going before the court and saying, well, yeah, I murdered the guy, but it's my parents' fault. And we live in such a society that a lot of time those defenses work. So it's, it's kind of a sad, <laughs> a sad picture of our society. But Paul brings in this frequent Old Testament metaphor of the potter and the clay. And he's basically asserting God's right to make the clay whatever he needs to further his purpose, which is for his own glory. If he wants to make a vessel for dishonorable use to display his glory and judgment, he has the right to do it. If he wants to make another vessel for honorable use to display his glory and mercy, he has the right to do it. The clay has no rights. And you might sit here this morning and say, well, that's not fair. If we're just passive clay with no free will, then how can God righteously judge us? Well, first of all, the last time I checked, the clay wasn't innocent. <laughs> right? The clay is not innocent. The clay is sinful. It's as sinful as it can get. Charles Hodge put it this way. It is not the doctrine of the Bible that God first makes men wicked and then punishes them for their wickedness. The scriptures only assert that we see what we see and know to be true, that God permits men in the exercise of their own free agency to sin and then punishes them for their sin and in proportion to their guilt. It is not the right of God to create. It is not the right of God to create sinful beings in order to punish them, but his right to deal with sinful beings according to his good pleasure. That is here and elsewhere asserted. He pardons or punishes as he sees fit. The punishment of the wicked is not an arbitrary act, he continues, not having no object but to make them miserable. It is designed to manifest the displeasure of God against sin and to make known his true character. Some here might dare to eject to say, well, but you claim that God is sovereign over everything. He decreed all that has come to pass. He could have made a world where sin was not possible, but he didn't. So if you assert that God is totally sovereign, you make him to be the author of sin. That's where our logic leads us. And you can answer that with Paul's retort, who are you, O man? <laughs> answer back to God. But first of all, stop and think about this, and we'll close with this. I know we didn't get through the whole outline. We'll finish it up next week or two weeks, I guess. First of all, some push human will, human free will, to the point where it robs God of his ultimate sovereignty. They enter into almost a dualistic theology, that there's a, a power of good and a power of evil, and they're both really dueling it out and right now, the power of evil has the upper hand on God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear that God works all things after the counsel of his will in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, including the sinful actions of Satan, the angels, of human beings. And if you stop and you look at the cross, that's a perfect example of that. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 it says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both 
Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. What's he speaking of? He's speaking of the cross. And so we need to begin to realize that our God is sovereign over these things, beloved. That, for those of us who are believers, should cause us to rejoice. For those of you who have yet to put your faith in Christ, you need to get on your knees and acknowledge when you say, well, how do I know if I'm one of the elect? Well, you'll believe the gospel. You'll come to the Savior. You'll acknowledge your sin before a holy God. You know, don't forget the same apostle who wrote all these words that we studied this morning also wrote in Romans 10, verses 11, 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches. Look at what it says, for all who call on him, for whosoever will call on the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. I pray this morning you call out to God. For his mercy. He's the only one that can save you. You can't save yourself. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this doctrine. And Lord, I know it's dicey. It's hard to get through this stuff. But, but Lord, I pray that it would cause us believers to rejoice in the fact that, Lord, you are sovereign over all these things. That this isn't something that you just kind of decided on one day and, and thought up last minute as a result because of we sinned. And, oh, now I've got to put together a plan. No, this is something that all these things were preordained before the world even began. And Father, we thank you for that. That even in this world we live in now where shootings and deaths are going on and terrorists are running amok and our own, our own country is going down the tubes faster than we, we'd like to see. Lord, I know the world looks to politics and, and things like that. But Lord, we know that we can only look to you. You're our only hope. And Father, we pray that you would do a mighty work in our heart. Lord, that you would give us the vision to see these doctrines in the light in which they're taught in Scripture. And that you would help us to bow our, our knee to you as the sovereign God, the sovereign Lord. We may not understand it all. None of us do. But that doesn't mean it's not true. We need to embrace it. And Father, we pray this morning, if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, that you would reach down and, and quicken their heart to understand Help them to see their need of a Savior. Father, you, you desire them to come to you. And all who come to you won't reject. That's what the word says. And so we thank you for that. And we pray that you would just bless our time of fellowship. And bless this week of EBS. As many kids will be here this week. Bless the workers. Bless everybody to put all the time in the decorations and everything. Father, we just pray that you would bless our time together this coming week. And Lord, that, pe that these young children would hear the gospel of Christ that their hearts would be quickened, that they would embrace the Savior. We thank you, and we, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.